today we are going to go old school and all of you are going to join me on a bit of a history lesson and in doing so we're going to uncover some gems from 20 years ago so oftentimes when it comes to training methods this is what we're talking about today effective training we think that what is currently the accepted way to train is the result of a, we learn more and we are reaching our final form as it were you think in 30 years time you just walk into a gym everyone knows what they're doing and that's it <laughs> that's not the case though because there's some great examples of this in our community steve shaw he'll tell you 20 years ago what was putting muscle on people worked back then now what we're doing now works for sure but things change and it's not always a progression oftentimes the change occurs just because there's a shift in momentum. And I'll tell you who's another great example of this, Dennis Freaky D. He's gotten ridiculously strong, mostly using linear periodization. Nothing conjugate, nothing block, just linear periodization. And that works. He's got very strong. Now, if you were to believe the current sentiment, then that is outdated. And we are onto newer, bigger, better things. But this is my point. Often what's new isn't always progress, it's just a change. So people change, they change their moods, things change, but it doesn't always invalidate what worked 20 years ago. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't always. And I wanna take you guys 20 years back in time to a training style that was originated on some of the old school hardcore bodybuilding forums by a guy called Dante Trudell. And here is the historical perspective. So from what I remember first discussing this approach in the early 2000s, it was put on the boards and it was accepted by some, by others, they didn't really like it. Dante had the username dog crap. So people would take the mick out of that, of course. And it was seen as for some people, it was seen as the gospel. For others, it was seen as a routine for drug abusers. For yet others, it was just seen as complete nonsense. But what Dante's approach was back then was also a result of the previous 10 to 20 years of accepted bodybuilding law. So here are some of the tenets of dog crap training, which made it different back then. So it was referred to back then as a high frequency program. Now, Many of you will laugh at that because it's you train a body part every five days. So that's not high frequency. It's, I would say, moderate frequency, roughly just over twice a week. So every five days, it was definitely low volume. Now, that was a large departure away from what was currently, at the time, bodybuilding law. Really only Dorian was doing low volume back then. Everybody else was doing super high volumes, just pumping it out back and forth over and over. And it was also high intensity. And again, apart from Dorian, hardly anyone was lifting with high levels of intensity. It was all just, I mean, you've seen the training tapes of Flex Wheeler train. He just does stuff <laughs> and then he stops. And then he looks very pensive at the camera and then he does stuff again and he stops again. So there really wasn't a great deal of intensity going on. It, what he was rallying against was this idea that you people were just doing more and more volume. Volume was everything. And the whole macho thing back then was how much volume can you do? That was what people considered to be macho. Nowadays, it's 
how close to failure train or whatever else. But back then, people placed a lot of value on how much you can work. And some people might argue that we're back to that now in 2022, but um, never mind. And the next point is poundage progression. That was also something which was seen as quite oddball. And Dante really pushed the logbook and small plates. And so that's another training tool. I can remember way back, this was as late as 2008, I think it was, I was in a gym in Wolverhampton, England, and I was training and I had my paper logbook. I kept paper logbooks for many years. So I had my paper logbook and I was already pretty strong at that time. I'd already benched three plates, squatted four, deadlifted five. So I was reasonably strong. And this big guy came up to me, obvious drug user, but he came up to me and he said, what are you doing with that logbook? You've got to, you've got to feel it. You can't just write everything down like it's a formula. So even as little as 15 years ago, there was resistance to the idea of a logbook. And this guy was like, you just got to go by feel brother. You'll leave it all on the platform, all that stuff. So there was resistance to the idea of logbook. Whereas for a lot of you guys now who have grown up in the last, over the last 20 years, perhaps you're in your twenties, perhaps your early thirties. For most of you, the logbook would seem like a pretty reasonable decision. You log your training, but back then it wasn't, particularly in the early 2000s. Hardly anyone was doing that. It was just, you turn up, you train, that's it really. You might remember what you did last week because it was a big number. Perhaps you put up two plates on the bench. Great. Eventually you might try two and a half, but there was no progression from two to two and a half. It was just a case of guys who just went in, lifted with no real idea what they did the week before, no numbers, and it was just pump, tone, blast. Okay. So that is why Dante's approach started to pique curiosity because it was such a departure from what people did back then. And that's what makes it interesting because now we look at it and go, that was old, it was old fashioned, but actually at the time that was revolutionary. And that came along a lot of other low volume approaches, which were starting to become prevalent back then in the early 2000s. So that's the historical perspective. Now, now let's look at Dante's perspective. What was his contention? What was his view on the problems of bodybuilding back then? And it's interesting because in all things in history, we stand on the shoulders of giants. What was true back then will be somewhat true now as well. So I want you guys to pay attention to this because this is really interesting. We're hearing the words of a guy who was very insightful, very much ahead of his time. And he turned a lot of guys into pro bodybuilders. Yes, of course, there was drugs involved there, but his training system is well established. He knew what he was doing. So his contention that people were not growing because they were doing, firstly, too much volume. Now, the idea of doing too much volume for him meant you could not train with a high degree of intensity because volume and intensity have a somewhat inverse relationship. The more you have to do, naturally, the further you spread your intensity, how hard you're working. You can either work long or you can work hard. You can't do both. That's what she said. So to that end, he wanted to really pare down on the volume so that you could put in maximum intensity to every set. Now, for his more advanced routines, he did have more volume there because as you get more and more advanced, your ability to push yourself across more sets tends to increase. There is a limit, of course, particularly if you're going all out, but that was his contention. People generally did too much volume which meant that their intensity was 
bottomed out. And so though that leads us to the next point. He didn't think people were really focused on progression. He's big on the logbook. He's big on just beating your PRs over and over again, using small plates, one or two reps at a time, getting the plus ones, all that kind of stuff. He was very much focused on progression and just getting brutally strong. His idea was that if you take your barbell back squat from, say, two plates for five to four plates for five, you're going to have considerably bigger legs. Now, I know we've discussed that quite a lot on the channel, particularly about what it means to have honest strength progression. But the fact of the matter is, strength progression is still important. It's the direct result of getting bigger. And progressive overload, just as a bit of a side tangent, is a little bit misunderstood still. Progressive overload is not the method, it's the result. It's basically the proof that what you're doing is working. Therefore, if you are not consistently able to demonstrate your stronger, odds are you cannot prove you're getting bigger. It doesn't happen, okay? So he figured there was not enough focus on the bottom line, that is progression. Are you creating bigger and stronger muscles? And is that evidenced by the fact that you're able to get one or two more reps this week or five more pounds? So that was his contention because prior to that, people weren't really focused on the logbook. And his, uh, his thought was, if you're not doing that, then how do you know you're growing? You can waste a week, a month, six months, you're not growing. Perhaps you're bulking during that time period. So if you're bulking, you're putting on 20 pounds, you filled out, you feel big, strong, you strip down and it's all fat because you made no effort to move the numbers. So, and the final thing is his contention was that we just weren't focused on movements which allowed for significant progression. So particularly for beginners and also for the more advanced guys somewhat, he wasn't a big fan of small exercises because if you think about it, a lateral raise, realistically speaking, how far can you load that over the course of a lifetime? I can tell you, I can look back over 20 years. The most I ever handled on side laterals when I was at my absolute biggest was probably 20 kilo dumbbells. That's it. Right now I handle about 15s. <laughs> There's, once you get to a certain point on these small isolation exercises, you can't really load them further. Whereas a seated overhead press, you can almost continue to load that indefinitely over and over again. So there is a limit, there is a cap on some of these smaller leverage exercises. How much can you load a chest fly rather than a dumbbell bench? There is just way more potential. So his final contention there was, we need to be focused on movements which allow for significant progression over the course of a lifetime. Small progression and over the course of a lifetime, big progressions. And he would almost completely avoid isolation exercises which weren't loadable. He would still do bicep work, forearm work, calf work, ab work, but everything else was all compound based. So that was his perspective, his evaluation of what was wrong at the time. Now, in talking through that, just comment down below. Is that some of the stuff in modern society now? Because I think there is a case to be made that some people in some pockets of communities think that volume is the be all end all answer. And that if you're not adding weight to the bar, if you just add more sets indiscriminately, that will solve the problem. Volume should be used to add weight to the bar. This has always been my contention. I 
needed more volume when I was stuck at my 200 pound bench to progress it to 300. So volume is fine for the purpose of providing more stimulus so you can get bigger, therefore you can demonstrate more weight on the bar or more reps. However, volume for volume's sake, it may well actually detract you. It may well prevent you from getting into that zone where you're working really hard and that's what results in muscle growth. Just doing a lot of work isn't really going to guarantee you're going to get any more muscular. In fact, it might just strip your body of glycogen, make you more prone to injury. I'll give you an analogy. I love my analogies. It's like, I'll give you an American analogy. Here we go. Imagine a football field, American football field. You've got the end zone on both sides and you've got the middle of the field. Now, if you're training with a bunch of sets which aren't stimulative, all you're really doing is messing around in the middle of the field. You want to get to the end zone. That's where you pick up points. Getting to the end zone is the equivalent of taking a set all the way or having it heavy enough and going all the way so you are stimulating growth. If you go to the gym and you're not training heavy enough or sufficiently close to failure, then it's the equivalent of putting on your uniform, going out on a Saturday, throwing the ball around, but you've got no intention or you're nowhere close to the end zone. You're not picking up any points. Yeah, you went out there, you got a bit of a sweat on, you might have even had a good time, but did you accomplish anything? No. So that's, I think, what he was saying, was you've got to try and avoid that. When you're in the gym, you're in the gym for a purpose and that's to stimulate muscle. You're not just there to move weights around. That's not going to guarantee muscle growth. It has to be sufficiently difficult. So that is sufficiently heavy and also sufficiently close to failure. And his way of doing that was to do sets which were to failure and beyond. So let's now explore what the method actually entails. So here's the basic outline. The basic outline is actually really simple. It's basically an upper lower split. So for you guys who want to know how to set this up, if you want to try it for a few months, it's dead simple. It's an upper lower split, five exercises a day. That's it. It's really simple. So the upper day, you've got chest, compound chest movement, compound delt movement, and then usually a compound tricep movement, maybe some extensions are okay as well. Then you have what he called a width movement for the back and then a thickness movement. The width movement is essentially just pull up and pull downs and equivalents on the machines. And a thickness movement is any type of row and also some types of deadlifts, rack pulls, stuff like that. So that's the basic outline of the first day. The second day is a lower day. And that starts off with biceps and forearms. And he does that because it balances out the days a little bit. It means you're not overloaded on stuff to do on the first day. And also I've experienced this as well. It doesn't really matter. There's not much of an overlap on just bicep and forearm work. You can go back two days later and do upper body with no problem. You do that, you do calves, you do hamstrings and quads. Now notice that he ends with quads. And there's a reason for that. And that is because the quads are worked very hard, which I'll explore later on. But essentially that's it. You're training every body part about three times every two weeks. So this routine you do three times a week, okay? Or you train three times a week and you just alternate upper, lower, upper the first week, the next week, lower, upper, lower, okay? The other slight complication is you're gonna have two or three versions of every upper day and two or three versions of every lower day. So for example, for chest, like you might have a regular bench press because it's heavy, it's loadable. 
although he wasn't a big fan of the bench, but you get the idea. You could have the regular bench, you could have a hammer strength flat press to the second movement, and you could have, I don't know, a dumbbell bench for the third movement. So those movements would kick off each upper day whenever you do it. So let's say you had three days, three separate days. Monday, you'd go ahead and do the hammer flat press. Friday, you'd kick off with the dumbbell bench. The next Wednesday, you'd kick off with the flat bench, and then you'd repeat the cycle over and over, just rotating the days. I would recommend if you're starting this and you're just starting off and you're not that strong, I would say start with two variations and just repeat them over and over. And then when you get a lot stronger, when you start to stall out, then add a third one. Okay, that's how I would do it if I was to run this. So that's the basic outline. Now, in terms of exercise variations, yeah, and I've already covered this, but just to fill out the rest, the chest is fairly easy. But in terms of width, you're looking at pull down type stuff. In terms of thickness, this is where it gets interesting because the thickness movements can and probably should include some type of deadlift. So either a rack pull, a stiff leg deadlift from the floor, a full deadlift from the floor, any of those would work fine. I think if I was to recommend something, my personal preference would be a stiff leg from the floor as the primary exercise. I think a full deadlift may be applicable if you're quite weak. Let's say you're benching up to three plates aside for reps. Then, sure, stick to the full deadlift. Rack pull, possibly applicable if you are very strong. Perhaps if you've got back problems, which preclude you from picking heavy stuff up from the floor. Some kind of injury concerns, maybe. But rack pulls are a decent option. I just think when you're very advanced, they're going to mean a lot of plates. Seven, eight, nine plates. If you're very weak, then you may as well pull from the floor. So I'm not sure if rack pulls have really got a place, but I know that Dante was a fan of them. For quads, really any quality quad movement will work. Regular squat, Smith squat, pendulum squat, leg press. You've got to be able to push those sets hard though. So if you're doing a squat and it's constantly hurting your back, probably take something which doesn't affect your back quite as much, like maybe a pendulum squat or a Smith squat or just a leg press is fine too. At my gym, we have a great hack squat. We have a couple of decent squat machines. We have a great leg press. Uh, we have a pendulum squat. So there are a lot of good options. And nowadays, most gyms have got some decent options. If not, you've got a Smith machine, a leg press, and a barbell. Mostly, those are pretty, three pretty good ones. So yeah, you just kind of rotate. All right, now the next thing is most of the sets would be rest pause sets. The idea is we're looking to get the most out of every set because the set count is quite low. We're looking to get the most out of every set. So we're gonna do them in a rest pause fashion. Now, there's plenty of different ways to do rest pause. You've got lots of different ways, infinite number of ways. But the way that he taught people to do the rest pause is to do the first portion of the set, which, be, which would be around about six to 12 reps, okay? And then ideally, if it's safe to do, you fail. You go until you fail, until you cannot push anymore. Your partner will help you to re-rack the weight. And then you want to rest for about 30 to 45 seconds. His recommendation was 10 to 15 breaths. But if you find that a bit inconsistent, just set your timer, 30 to 45 seconds. And then you do the second portion, which is as many reps as you can do, and you get straight back into it. If you're hitting about 12 reps on the first set, you're probably going to hit something like three to six reps on the second set. It depends 
how hard you're capable of pushing on the first set. If I do something like this, I lose a lot of reps after 30 seconds, like a lot, because I'm capable of pushing myself really hard and really close to failure and then struggling against the rep. So I can leave it all on that first set. So my rep count would drop from say 12 reps to three, okay? And that would be pretty normal for me. Then you rack the bar or you fail, your partner helps you rack the bar. You rest for another 30 to 45 seconds or 10 to 15 deep breaths. And then you do the final portion, which is again, as many reps as you can. Normally at this point, you're getting between one to three reps. And finally, if you really want the pain, you end with a static hold. So what that means is if you're on say a hammer strength chest press, you'll just hold the weight somewhere along the rep and try and hold it there as much as you can just to keep that tension on the muscle until you finally can't even hold it anymore. Then you're thoroughly exhausted. So these are recommended to be done on most sets. So they could be done on chest, delts, triceps, back width, biceps, hammies, hamstrings if you're doing curls, but you don't want to do them on deadlifts. So this is the majority of the work. Anywhere where it's safe to do essentially, because you're typically only doing one set. So it's a rest pause. Now, the next thing to talk about is Widowmakers. So this is done for quad movements. So for the quad exercises, which is the final exercise on leg day. And it's the final exercise for this reason. And that is after the Widowmaker, you're done. Now they call Widowmakers because the idea is if you're married, then you're trying to make your wife a widow. Basically, you're trying to kill yourself on the platform, you're trying to kill yourself with that exercise. So you start off with that basic set of six to 10, and then you follow that up after an appropriate rest. You know, you, you take a good few minutes rest. You follow that up with your final set of the day, which is an all out set of 20 reps in a sort of a breathing fashion. That is you get to 10, you take a few deep breaths, keeping, you know, the load on you. So if you're in a leg press, you lock out your legs, you sit there for a while until you get your breath back, do a few more reps. Then maybe at rep 13, you hold the bar, you hold the platform again, and then you go for a few more. You just keep extending the set until you get 20. It's a brutally hard way to train. I wouldn't recommend doing this on like a barbell squat. In those cases, if your main movement is a barbell squat, you would probably want to do your Widowmaker on a leg press or on a machine. That's perfectly acceptable. It's the one instance where your back offset would be on a different exercise. That's okay. For safety's sake, it's probably better if you do most of your back offs on the leg press, just for safety's sake, because they're hard. Next is, yeah, the static hold and the extreme stretching. So we've covered a static hold and you would do that for almost every exercise. You don't want to do static holds for things like deadlifts, squats, where you're not doing the rest pause method, but you do them for pretty much everything else. Now. When it comes to extreme stretching, he was also pretty much ahead of his time. And back then there was a guy called John Perillo, who he, I think he was influenced by him, but there was this idea that you could hold your muscles in a stretch position with weight, it's like a loaded stretch, and that would contribute to hypertrophy. I remember this at the time, because I remember looking at the muscle mags when I was a kid and this guy, John Perillo was there. He had Perillo strength systems or something like that. And he was forcing people to do these really painful weighted stretches. And his idea was that it was something to do with like myofascial release or something like that. I forget what it was. Just stretching the sack that holds the muscle. But uh, whether that was true or not, we now know that loaded stretching actually probably is quite good for hypertrophy. So it's something that you can include, which may well aid in 
in growth. And that's being somewhat corroborated now by recent research. But yeah, the stretch should be painful. It should be weighted. So I'll give you an example. You can look this up on Google, but there are lots of examples out there. But an example for a chest press, because I have done this a few times, is to hold a couple of dumbbells, heavy dumbbells, and just hold them in this position for a while, letting them stretch your chest. You want to hold it for anywhere between 30 to 60 seconds if you can. And the idea is to load this like everything else. So if you start with 10s, you might end with 30s or 40s. So it's a progression. But yeah, that was also something to do. And you could do that either after every exercise or after every section, or even just at the end altogether. So some concluding thoughts on this. Now, as I said at the beginning, what is considered to be the way to train changes drastically over time. And sometimes what happens is we, we make progress, we learn, we evolve, we improve. Other times it's just swings and roundabouts. We're just responding to what people did before us. Like for example, if you remember a few years ago, there was research about muscle protein synthesis and all of a sudden bro splits were, were dead. You guys remember that? And every influencer was saying, yeah, bro splits are stupid. I had guys in commercial gyms around here saying, yeah, you don't want to do bro splits. You want to train everything twice a week. And now we know probably not that valid. There's a lot of things which have come out over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, which have been good moved in the right direction. But there's also been a lot of things which have come about, which haven't been corroborated as true. They've just been different. So I think we've got to be very careful about that. And ultimately at the end of the day, you've got to do what works for you. And for that reason, for some of you, this might still be a very valid approach. There is a lot to be said for lower volume approaches in the right context. It's not, it's not a minimalistic routine really, because the intensity, the thought process is there. It's supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be challenging. However, it is a deviation from some circles in 2022 who push much higher volumes. Not to say they, those guys are invalid, but what I'm saying is that what they're doing right now doesn't necessarily invalidate what put muscle on people 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, it is, it's always one of those things. 20 years ago seems like such a long time ago to some people. For me, it's like yesterday. But we have to respect the experiences of people back then because those people were just like us. They were out there trying to put on some mass and a lot of them did very well. And they did very well with approaches which right now we would consider to be completely backward. They were out there, they were doing it, they were putting the muscle on. So who's to say they were wrong? And who's to say that might not be a better approach for you right now? So I wanted to take you down, down memory lane with that. I think it's an interesting approach. I think it says a lot about the ability to work hard and it certainly put a lot of muscle on people back in the day. So with that, I'll leave you, uh, take care, all the best.